Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. Well, praise the Lord. I'm glad to see you tonight. Thank you, Brother Philip, for the wonderful music and choir. And uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to say goodbye to you, so don't time me. Don't put me on the clock. Uh, none of this counts. But, but I want to thank you, Brother Jason, for the privilege. Always my joy to come to uh, Lebanon. I love this part of the country. I love to come to Tennessee anyway, and I really enjoy, have enjoyed this place. But I thank you, brother, for the privilege to come. And, and I, Pastor, I'm committing to you that whatever you've given us in the love offering goes straight into our ministry. It'll be used for the Lord. And uh, I want to thank you in advance. Thank you for all the books y'all have bought, all that stuff. Y'all have been such a blessing. The accommodations, the car, the airline ticket, the whole smash. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to fly back home in the morning, uh, back to Jacksonville. And then... Um, just got a one-day event on Sunday, and then would you pray for us? Right after that, it's our ministry's student camps. we be our 28th consecutive year uh, of student camps, and they'll be in Johnson City, Tennessee. And so you pray for those camps, and then our Bible conference to follow, and then before you know it, it'll be uh, August again, and I'll be picking it back up on the road. But you pray for our, our ministry, and I have just been so blessed uh, to be with you during these days. Take your Bibles, if you would, and find 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, as a traveling evangelist, I'm uh, amazed at the messages uh, God puts together. Matter of fact, I'm going to preach a sermon tonight that uh, completely different from what I told Pastor Jason I was going to preach this morning. Uh, I, just, um, I just believe God wants this message preached. I want you to know I've never closed a revival meeting with this particular message. If this message is ever preached, it's always preached up early in the meeting because I like to conclude preaching for a harvest. But I just believe it's a good way uh, to leave tonight. And uh, the message I want to preach, God gave me about two years ago, preached more than any sermon God gave me that year. But I've only preached it one time this year. And maybe I need it more than anybody tonight. If anybody needs this, it's a traveling evangelist. After being on the road since January, maybe I need this sermon more than anybody. But I'm preaching on this, mess, on this subject, why the enemy wants you to quit. Why the enemy wants you to quit. From 2 Timothy chapter 4, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Everybody standing. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 5. Paul is on death row. He's waiting for Nero to come cut his head off. Paul writes a letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, some of the last words that he would write to the young preacher. Here's what he says. 2 Timothy 4, 5, but watch thou in all things, endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. But not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Somebody's here tonight by the divine appointment of the Lord. And I'm preaching on this subject, why the enemy wants you to quit. Why the enemy wants you to quit. Thank God for the reading of his inerrant book. Please be seated and pray with me. Father, I'm so grateful tonight for what you've done this week. God, I'm so thankful for souls that you have saved. 
God, I'm thankful, Lord, for hearts that you've touched. Thank you for the music, the giftedness of our singers and our musicians. God, thank you for the privilege to enter into your presence. You are worthy. Now, God, I need you. I can't work up what I need. I can't manufacture it and I cannot perform it. God, I ask you for the anointing of the Holy Ghost. So, God, I pray that you would loose me and let me go. And God, I declare to my enemy, he is a liar. And he is not welcome in this house. Surround this place with your holy angels, God. And we promise to give you the glory. And God will praise you right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Don't quit. I love the story of the 85-year-old great-grandmother that went to her children and grandchildren's church one Mother's Day. She was a shouting holiness woman, and they went to a dull, dry, dead Baptist church. Well, the choir got up and sang a song about the blood of the lamb, and the little woman who was only five foot tall couldn't help it. She stood on top of the bench and shouted, hallelujah, hallelujah. And when she did, an usher in a bright red blazer with a dignified gold name tag came and said, lady, you're going to have to be quiet. You're disturbing our service. She said, I can't help it. I got the joy of the Lord. He said, well, lady, you didn't get it here. And so you're going to have to just shut up. Well, the choir finished in a great crescendo and that little woman couldn't help it. Son, she got loose, started running up and down the aisle. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, they had to get her out of there, man. One usher in a bright red blazer was on one side of her. One usher in a bright red blazer was on the other side of her. They lifted up the diminutive little five foot woman by the elbows and they started carrying her out of the church. She was that high off the ground kicking and screaming, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. One of the ushers said, shut up lady. What do you mean you're not worthy? She said, I'm not worthy. When my Lord came into Jerusalem, he just had one donkey. It's taken two donkeys to carry me out of this church tonight. Now, now son, I'm going to tell you all about that woman right now. That woman wasn't going to quit. Has anybody here ever felt like quitting? Now, you don't have to raise your hand. You've already said amen. I mean, a lot of folks feel like quitting. You know what I've discovered, preacher? I've discovered quitting is epidemic in the body of Christ. I've discovered more than ever staff members and preachers are burning out and falling out and giving out. Members are running and resigning from positions. We're living in a day when many churches are in trouble because folks in the body of Christ are quitting. And you may really want to quit. I'm not belittling that. There may be somebody here that wants to quit right now worse than you've ever wanted to quit. But can I just remind you something? As bad as you might want to quit and it might be bad, there's somebody that wants you to quit worse than you want to quit. Son, the devil wants us all to quit. He don't like what's going on here tonight. He don't want us preaching and praying and praising. He don't want us singing and serving and shouting. The devil wants us all to quit. You know what I believe? I believe the devil threw the kitchen sink at the greatest Christian in the New Testament trying to get the apostle Paul to quit. I believe the devil threw everything at Paul trying to get him to give up and to quit. I'm preaching from 2 Timothy 4. I've already told you students of the Bible, you know where we are. Paul's on death row. Paul is waiting to be executed. And you know how Paul spends the last days of his life? He spends the last days writing a letter. But it's not a letter of resignation. It's a letter of release. Paul is waiting to go to heaven. And can I go ahead and tell you? He's kind of pumped up about it. How you know, preacher? I know that by verse number 6. You know what it says, students. It says, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. 
You know that word departure. You know that it's an English word departure, but in the Greek word or the Greek world, it's a word picture, but it's a profound Greek word because it's not just one word picture, but at least four. For when he says the word depart, literally, it's a nautical term in the Greek language. It means to pull up the anchor and set sail for the other shore. When he says depart, literally, it's an agricultural term. It means take the yoke off the oxen for the day's work is done. When he says depart, it's a military term. He says, soldier, fold up your tent and march out because the battle is over. When he says depart, it's a legal term. Prisoner, take off the handcuffs. You have been set free. Everybody got the picture? Paul says, I'm about ready to depart. Take off my handcuffs. I'm ready to be set free. I'm about to depart. Take off the yoke. My work is done. I'm ready to depart. Fold up the tent. I'm marching out. I'm ready to depart. Pull up the anchor. I'm setting sail for the other shore. Paul says, I'm ready to depart. And you know what I believe the message is tonight? I believe the message for somebody in this building besides this preacher tonight is this. I believe somebody that's down, somebody that's discouraged, somebody that's hurting, somebody that's up against it, somebody that's ready to throw in the towel. I believe the word is this. Stand in the power of the Holy Ghost. Look the devil right in the eye and say, liar, I'm not going back up, give up, let up, soften up or shut up until I'm caught up. I'm going to stay by the stuff. See, the devil wants you to quit. I'm going to give you three reasons in this passage why I believe the enemy wants us all to quit. Number one, I believe the enemy wants us to quit. Don't miss this. So you'll be filled with regret. I need to say that again. So you'll be filled with regret. Look what the great apostle writes in verse number five. He says, but watch thou in all things. Then he says this, endure afflictions. That word afflictions means hardship. I'm going to make one of those duh statements. All right, everybody knows this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Ministry is hard. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Ministry is difficult. Ministry is stressful. Ministry is hard. Hey, these bodies will only take so much glory, man. And I'm telling you, ministry gets hard. I'm a traveling evangelist. I've been doing this 29 years I'm on the road 40-something weeks a year, and my wife, I told you Sunday nights, the greatest Christian in our family. Because Jason, my wife's heard me gripe and grumble and bellyache for 29 years. I love doing what I do, but I gripe when I get in a dead church. And folks, I'm in churches where you want to holler, breathe, all right? I'm telling you, she hears me gripe when I get in dead churches. She hears me gripe when I get a low love offering. She hears me gripe about ratty hotels. And I'm in a great one this week, but I've been in ratty hotels from time to time. Son, I've been in hotels where I'm sure the stain on the floor is where a body was. I'm telling you, I'm just in hotels like that. She's heard me gripe about about plane schedules, heard me gripe about late night driving. Bless her heart, she's heard me gripe and she'll just say, honey, I'm praying for you, just keep on. I was in Ohio a couple years ago and I was in one of those grapathons because I was in one of them dead churches. Preachers, I was in one of them churches where they just look at you like, go ahead, preacher, let your veins stick out, spit and sweat. We don't give a rip. We were dead before you got here. We'll be dead after you leave. You just go right ahead. Preacher, I was in one of them churches and That week in Ohio, that ice storm had come through and the whole thing was below zero all week. So I was trying to drive my rental car every night through those mountains of Ohio to get to church. It snowed every night. Son, you can't get Baptists to come to church in the rain, much less the snow, man. It snowed every night. 
Every night it snowed and I griped to my wife. So Tuesday afternoon, it was like five below zero. I'm in my hotel room and she said, honey, you need a little release. She said, what you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to study for tonight. She said, I can tell your heart's not in it. I want to tell you something. You need some release. She said, is there snow on the ground? I said, yeah, it's foot deep. She said, why don't you go out and build a snowman for our granddaughters and take a picture and send it to them. She wanted me to build Olaf. Y'all know Olaf? She wanted me to build Olaf. And I'm an indulgent grandfather. At first I said, sweetheart, it's five below zero. Are you out of your mind? But she wanted me to build Olaf. So I'm an indulgent grandfather. I figure if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right, man. So I did get a little better attitude. I put on my thermals, put on my hoodie. And I went over to Walmart and got a carrot for his nose. I got some black bonbons for his buttons or black candy for his buttons. And I trudged out in the snow and I finally found a ditch with some packed snow to try to build Olaf. And I'm building Olaf that I tell you is five below. I'm building Olaf in five below weather. And this is the true story. I felt like somebody was looking at me, y'all. And I looked up and over in the enclosed heated pool area, there are several people looking at me building a snowman. And one woman had her camera phone out. I'm telling you the truth. And y'all know what she did. She took a picture probably and sent a text. Look at this moron building a snowman in five below zero. Well, uh, folks, true story. I'm already having a bad week now. I got Olaf built and that's when the fun started. You got to take your gloves off because smartphones aren't smart enough to work through gloves. So I took my smartphone off to take a picture of Olaf. Did I tell you it's five below? I dropped the camera down in the snow. And when I bent down to pick it up, I dropped my gloves down in the snow. So now bare naked hands, I'm trying to pick up those gloves. And I stood up and my shoulder knocked Olaf's head off. So now, since my gloves are full of ice, I had to fashion it back with my bare hands. And then shaking, I put the carrot through the side of his cheek. Oh, it was just a circus, ma'am. And I finally got the picture of Olaf taken. And I got back to my room and I had something to complain about. I I said, honey, my fingers look like an exit sign. I'm going to lose some digits now. Not only am I in a dead church, but I'm going to give body parts this week. Oh, this is a bad, bad week. Now, don't y'all look at me like you hadn't complained about stuff. Oh, come on, son. I'm talking about many Christians in modern day churches complain if a vote don't go to suit them in a business meeting. They complain if they don't like the way the church is spending the money. They complain if somebody straps the parking lot a different color than they wanted it. They complain if they're using styrofoam cups instead of paper cups because they could save three cents, man. I mean, that's what folks complain about. And some folks complain and complain and complain. So don't look like you've never complained. But then we get to the place sometimes where we'll get so caught up in what we're doing and so overwhelmed, we'll just give up and say, I don't want to do this anymore. And when I think about the Apostle Paul, How pathetic it would be for Paul to know that I was out there complaining because I was in a bad week and it was five below zero. And then I got back in my room and read 2 Corinthians 11. I read where this guy Paul, if anybody had anything to complain about, oh, come on, son, he was beaten with whips five times. He was beaten with rods three times. He was in shipwrecks three times. And one of those, he was left in the ocean a day and a night. He was put down in a basket and lowered over a wall in Damascus to keep from being killed. He was stoned and left under a pile of rocks. They thought he was dead. The Bible said he was in peril in the wilderness. He was in peril in the city. He was in peril everywhere he went. And he kept on keeping on. See, we quit over the most insignificant things. We quit if we get our feelings hurt. 
We could have somebody says something we don't like. And folks, I'm not preaching down at you tonight. I love you. I'm telling you this. The devil's behind all of it. Because if the devil can get you to quit, if the devil can get one person to walk away from their post, if the devil can get you to give up what you're doing in the church, you know the first thing he'll do after you quit? Since he's the guilt inducer, he'll fill you with regret. When you hit your pillow at night, he'll tell you how lousy you are because you've quit on God. He'll fill you with regret. Can I remind you before I go any further? To be filled with regret. You know why the devil will fill you with regret? Number one, if you quit, the devil will fill you with regret because your ministry will be unfulfilled. It's right here in the word of God. Look at verse five. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist. That was Timothy's gift. And then I like this one. Make full proof of thy ministry. And that phrase, are you, are you listening? That phrase, full proof, those two words means do whatever God has gifted you to do. It may not be singing a song. It may be changing dirty diapers. It may not be preaching. It might be stacking tables and folding chairs. But he says, do what God's gifted you to do and do it to the glory of God. Can I remind everybody who we are? We're the church. It is a privilege to be part of the church. It's a privilege to serve in the church. It don't matter what you're doing in the church. It don't matter whether you're, whether you're on the platform in the spotlight or your own security out in the parking lot with a flashlight. It don't matter whether you're in the broom closet, stacking chairs, or you're teaching a Sunday school class. It don't matter whether you're taking up money or feeding folks. It don't matter whether you're changing diapers or leading preschoolers. Oh, come on, son. Speaking Brother Rick, changing dirty diapers, uh, that's not important to the body of Christ. Are you kidding me? That little baby whose diaper you're changing today will one day grow up in church and be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Son, that makes it worth it all. That, that little preschooler, it's never been more difficult to work with preschoolers. We got a bunch of folk back there tonight with all them preschoolers. I mean, they're paying the price this week, man. And I mean, some of those folks work hard. You think, Rick, all I do is work with preschoolers. That's not a big deal. Go home on Sunday shaking cookie crumbs out of my clothes. You you ought to get a purple heart. I mean, some of them are just climbing the walls. But that little boy you're teaching that Bible lesson to today may one day open up the word of God and preach the gospel. That girl that you're teaching today may one day go on the mission field. She might be a preacher's wife. I'm telling you, son, it is a thrill to love little children. It's a thrill to change those dirty diapers. It's a thrill to work with teenagers. Thank God for those five amens. It's a thrill to work with teenagers, son. And that's never been more difficult. We're fixing a deal with almost a thousand of them at camp. I mean, son, listen, we're told by psychologists that guys like me, when you get up in front of a teenager, you got 12 seconds to get them. If you don't get them in their fast modem world in 12 seconds, you're done, man. And there's no way, I'm old now, there's no way I can be cool like a teenager. I mean, I, I can't spike my hair. I'm not even going to try skinny jeans. I mean, I can't do all that stuff. I mean, I could try to look like them. You, by the way, for those of you guys in your 50s or older, uh, can I tell you, don't try to be cool around a teenager. Man, just love them and give them Jesus. They're going to laugh at you. They know you're not cool. I mean, you, you can try to walk around like you've got, like a 13-year-old, like you've got rheumatoid arthritis, and, and you can hold your hands like this and say stuff like, yo, dog. I mean, you can do all that stuff. But those kids are not impressed. But can I tell you something? They are impressed, whether they'll admit it or not, with somebody that'll stand up and tell them the truth in the spirit of love. And when the Holy Ghost gets a hold of one of them and they get saved, hallelujah, that's worth it all, man. 
Y'all know what I'm trying to say? I'm trying to say do what God's gifted you to do. I didn't mean to get worked up in all that, but bless God, it's too late, man. I mean, how many know everybody that saves got a ministry? Shout amen. Amen. The devil don't want you to fulfill your ministry. See, the devil wants to fill you with regret. If he fills you with regret, it'll be because your ministry is unfulfilled. But I'll give you this one. Then your mission is unfinished. See, everybody here's got a mission. Look what he says now in that great sixth verse. For I am now ready to be offered. Students, Bible students, you know what that means. I'm being poured out. See, it's a picture of the sacrificial system in the book of Numbers. I'm being poured out on the altar. See, see, students, they would take a vessel full of water and they would pour it out on the carcass of the animal and they would pour it out on that altar until it was completely empty. Paul said, I'm being poured out. Y'all know what Paul's saying? I'm giving the ultimate sacrifice. And many Bible scholars agree Paul was talking about his own death because Paul knew he could not be crucified. Crucifixion was so barbaric that even a traitor like Paul, and that's what Rome thought he was, they would not crucify him because he was a citizen of Rome. So Paul knew that he was going to be beheaded. Literally, his blood was going to be poured out. Literally, Paul was going to give his life for the cause of Christ. And y'all know what Paul's saying before I go on? In this passage, I believe he said, I'm ready. Have y'all caught the tenor of his voice? I'm ready to go and I have no regrets. Boy, that's how I want to stand before Jesus. I didn't mean I'm everything I ought to be. I didn't mean I don't stumble and fall. But one day I want to stand before my Lord God, one of these days, and I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. No regrets. And if you quit on God, you'll be filled with regret. I'm not finished. Number two, the enemy wants you to quit for three reasons. Number one, he wants you to quit so you'll be filled with regret. Number two, the enemy wants you to quit so you'll forfeit your reward. Boy, don't miss that. So you'll forfeit your reward. And now we move down to verse 8. I'll come back to verse 7. He says, henceforth, because of this, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me that day. Folks, you know the word crown? Bible students, you know this. That is the Greek word Stephanos. There's a number of words for crown in your New Testament. And Stephanos means the victor's crown. And so he said, yeah, Rick, the victor's crown. That's the crown that goes to preachers. Absolutely not. Victor's crown goes to believers. Every believer can win a victor's crown. And Paul said, it is the victor's crown. Now, I'm striving for the victor's crown, the crown of victory. Now, I know where I'm preaching. I'm preaching in the state of Tennessee. And it's almost football season. So don't y'all look at me like winning ain't everything. Because it is. So he said, oh, Brother Rick, it don't matter whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. <laughs> Boys, if that were true, they wouldn't keep score. Next year when Tennessee plays Alabama, they're just going to gather together the 50-yard line, take off their helmets, have a picnic, and sing kumbaya. They're going to turn the scoreboard off because it, it matters whether you win or lose. Oh, yes, it does. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. It matters to you Predator fans whether you win or lose, brother. I'm telling you right now. So I know I'm there. It matters whether you win or lose. It's all about winning. I was raised playing baseball. I had no skill really in any other sport, but I played baseball 14 years. And I had a competitive temper, man. Oh, I had a temper on the ball field. When I was 12 years old, we didn't have travel ball or nothing in those days. 12, when you were 12 years old in Little League, that was your big dog year. 12 years old. And 12 years old is still the last year of Little League. At least it is in Florida. I was 12 years old. Now, we went on to, to what we call Pony League and Colt League and all those things. But back in those days, 12 years of preaching, I was 12 years old, my big year. And that year, true story, I was in the North Brandon Little League outside of Tampa, Florida. And that year, to my knowledge, for the only time in history, they changed the names of the teams. 
Up until that year, we'd been cool major league names like Braves and Dodgers, and Cardinals and Cubs and Reds and Yankees. But that year, they changed it to animal names. Now, this is the truth. Of all the teams I could have been on, I wasn't on the Lions or the Eagles or the Tigers. I am not making this up. My brother played on the same team. He would testify this is true. I was on the Possums. No, no, I'm not kidding, son. I was on the possums. We were green. We had green caps and green stirrups. We were possums. I don't know, some redneck sponsored the team. I don't know, but we were named after hillbilly speed bumps, man. We were possums, possums. And all year long, that's all we heard, especially from the Eagles. Listen, I hated the Eagles, hated the Eagles. I wasn't saved, I hated. I hated the Eagles, man. Hate it. Oh, son, oh, we played them and say, oh, we're, tonight we're playing buzzard bait. Oh, tonight we're playing roadkill. Oh, I hated the Eagles. <laughs> but boy, we were good and we made it all the way to the championship game. Guess who we played? The Eagles. Bottom of the sixth. Everybody knows that's how many games innings you play in the league. Preacher, I'm in center field and I'm so pumped up. I'm looking at the scoreboard. And then I'm looking behind home plate at the concession stand where that mantle was, because that counter was, because lined up on that counter is all them little trophies, man. I'm going to get me a trophy. Now, this is the 60s, son. I mean, a trophy then was a big deal. And I'm looking at that little trophy, man, because we're winning four to nothing. It's the bottom of the six, four to nothing. I'm going to give me a trophy. You know, it was like a Super Bowl ring to us. That little marble stand with that little gold guy about that tall plastic guy swinging that bat. I'm going to get me a trophy. And I'm out in center field and I already planned what I was going to do. I'm a preacher's son, but it didn't matter. I already planned what I was going to do. I was going to stick that trophy in them eagles' faces. Say, hey, boys, you lost a roadkill. You lost a buzzard bait. I was going to talk me a little trash, son. I couldn't wait because our best pitcher was pitching on the mound. We're ahead four to nothing. Y'all, we did not retire one batter in the bottom of the sixth. They scored five runs without an out. And they jerked my little heart out of my 12-year-old chest. And I'm telling you, we had to walk by. There's a point to this. We walked by, shook hands, but not me, son. Now, I'm a preacher's kid. My daddy's in the stands watching. And I walked by just like this. I'm not shaking one of them eagles' hands. I'm not shaking their hands. I'm telling you, I walked by. My daddy met me at the gate by the dugout at first base. And my daddy said, boy, why didn't you shake hands? And I pitched a fit. 12 years old, I said, I want a trophy. And I threw my glove down in the dirt. My daddy said, get in the car, boy. I got in the car, and the whole way to the house, I'm griping. I want a trophy. I want a trophy. I want a trophy. And my daddy's looking at me. My daddy went to heaven in January. I told you, greatest man I've ever known. Great disciplinarian. Looked in that rearview mirror. I can still see his eyes right now, son. I'll never forget this day. My daddy looking at me in that rearview mirror. I said, I want a trophy. I want a trophy. I want a trophy. My daddy said, be quiet. You're going to get something else when you get home. <laughs> Y'all know what I got? Now, I got more than a whipping. Now, this will preach right here. You know what I got when I got home? I got what I deserved. Now, I want everybody to listen very carefully to me because, Brother Jason, somebody might misconstrue this that I'm preaching a work salvation. We cannot discount the fact that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Child of God, you know what we're going to get when we get home? We're going to get exactly what we deserve. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
But none of us can evaluate or estimate what it's going to be like to stand in front of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and kneel at his feet and lay a trophy down representing what we did for God in this life. Don't you understand? We cannot put our abilities on the shelf. We can't leave our talents alone. We cannot walk away and use our, not use our gifts. Don't you understand? We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And folks, I'm just preaching what Paul said through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. 1 Corinthians 3. Some Christians' lives, when they stand before Jesus, is going to represent wood, hay, and stubble of a wasted, worthless Christian life. Of somebody who was saved by grace but did not serve the Lord and use the gifts God given them. Folks, it will be a tragic day. Paul said on that day, you will suffer loss. No, not your salvation, but the loss of rewards, the loss of trophies to lay down at the feet of the Redeemer that we praise, to lay down at the feet of the Redeemer that we lift our hands for on this earth, to lay down at the feet of the Redeemer who died for us. I want to lay something down at the feet of Jesus, don't you? And I believe the Bible teaches I can forfeit that reward if I quit on God. If I don't use the gift God's given me, I want to go through life as a victorious Christian. Anybody here need victory tonight? I skipped verse 7 on purpose. It's the whole meat of the message. My last point won't be long, I don't think. But I'm going to get through this part. Because I want to go back to verse 7 now. Preacher, I believe it's a picture of victorious Christian living. See, there are three analogies in verse 7. This is good. The first two analogies are athletic analogies. And the third one is a financial term or analogy. And I believe there are three pictures, but I want to preach this. And boy, I'm, so, I'm really worked up because I struggle late this afternoon. This is the message God wanted for somebody in the building tonight. It's been that way at least three nights this week. And somebody needs this mail now, so don't miss this. I'm telling you, I really believe there are three pictures of a victorious Christian. Number one, a victorious Christian is somebody who stands against temptation. Let me say that one more time. Stands against temptation. Look at verse number seven. He says, I have fought a good fight. A picture of two Greco-Roman wrestlers wrestling in the ring. I have fought a good fight. You know what the word fought means? To struggle with an adversary. Now I'm going to be real blunt tonight. Sometimes the Christian life can be a struggle. Don't you look at me like you don't understand that statement. Sir, sometimes it's a struggle to keep your mind pure. Teenager, it's a struggle to keep your dating life wholesome. It's a struggle to keep Bible study in its proper priority. It's a struggle to keep your devotion life intact. In this busy world, it's a struggle to keep everything in its proper perspective. It's a struggle to keep your emotions in check. Now, folks, I'm not preaching gloom and doom. I didn't preach that it was hopeless. Don't you understand? A spirit-filled child of God has him living in us, and we walk in victory. We're not waiting to win. Hallelujah. We've already won. And there may be somebody here tonight that is struggling. You're walking in spiritual defeat. But before I go any further, can I just give you some of what I call the declarations of victory in the Bible? There, there's, there's a few. People that looked like they were up against it that walked in the power of God. Let me take you back to the Red Sea. Remember, old Moses had divided the Red Sea with the rod of God. They walked across on dry ground. Pharaoh's army was drowned. But don't you remember Moses' declaration of victory to those couple of million of Israelites? I can picture him preacher standing on that rock with that rod of God in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, when he said, the Lord will fight for you. That's a declaration of victory. Remember Gideon's declaration of victory in Judges? When God said, Gideon, you got over 30,000 men, you got way too many. Get you 300. Oh, Gideon got 300 men. God said, now get rid of your swords. And God gave them trumpets and ceramic pitchers and candles. 
And God said, go ahead and blow them trumpets and break them pots and they achieved victory. But don't you remember Gideon's declaration of victory? Before it all happened, he said, take heart, boys. The Lord will fight our enemies. My favorite declaration of victory is old David. Little old David, that boy that walked out to fight that nine and a half, ten foot monster in the Valley of Elah. That monster that had held a big old ham-like fist to the heavens and looked up at the greatest army in the world for 40 days, said, hey, you big sissy, if there's a man among you, send somebody down here to fight me. And they cowered in their tents for 40 days. And yonder comes old David. Didn't have a stitch of armor on. Saul's was too big. Saul was a 46 long and David was a 36 regular man. He's just a kid. So David piled the armor up and the Bible said he chose him five smooth stones. Five food smooth stones. Why five, preacher? I'm preaching this at youth camp, I told preacher. Because in 2 Samuel, the Bible said old Goliath had four brothers, man. And David knew they were going to keep coming at him, son. So that teenage boy, this is my favorite, walks down in the middle of the valley, looked old Goliath right in the navel, man, and he gives the declaration of victory. And y'all remember it, don't you? Oh, come on, son. First Samuel 17, 45 through 47. I'm going to give it to you. Paraphrase. David said, hey, big boy, you come to me with a sword and a spirit of shield, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of these armies of Israel that you have defied, I'm dropping you today, big boy. I'm killing you. Going to cut your ugly head off. Going to hold it up. Going to sink a rock in your frontal lobe. And after I do it, everybody's going to know God did it because it's not my battle. Hallelujah. The battle is the Lord's, man. That's what he said. That's a declaration of victory. Hey, man, you remember the declaration of victory of old Jehoshaphat? When he got him a bunch of singers? I preached about that, I believe, the other night. And they sung their way to victory. But Jehoshaphat's declaration was this. Stand still, boys, and see the salvation of our God. You say, but Rick, that's all in the Old Testament. That's all cool. What about New Testament? You want a declaration of victory? If God be for us, who can be against us? You want a declaration of victory? We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. You need a declaration of victory? I will never leave you or forsake you. And one of these days, we're going to ride back with him on that white horse from glory with white robes and not get a dab of blood on our robes because he'll do all the fighting for us. Brother Philip, I still believe it's the alma mater of the church and I can't sing it so I'll just quote it. Hallelujah, there's victory in Jesus. He's my savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. If you stand against temptation in the power of the Holy Ghost, I believe you'll receive the victor's crown. Not finished. There's a second analogy. First of all, and somebody needs this one. If you stand against temptation, you'll be crowned. And second of all, if you stay on track. Why well, do you say that again? If you stay on track, because now he moves from the wrestling ring to the running track. And he says in verse 7, I fought a good fight. Now he says, I finished my course. And it's specific. Everybody here has got a course. said, I finished my race. That's what he said. Can I say something to everybody? Those that are even new Christians this week. If you think once you get saved, the devil's going to go over the corner and leave you alone. You're mistaken. Now, I remind everybody in this building that's saved, the devil's not going to leave you alone. And since he's lost your soul, he's going to do everything he can to knock you off track. Guys, he'll bring an ungodly woman in your life to knock you off track. Girls, he'll bring an ungodly guy in your life to knock you off track. He'll bring your football team in your life to knock you off track. He'll bring making money in your life to knock you off track. The devil will bring good things into your life to knock you off track. He'll do anything he can do to knock you off track. The admonition or not is this, stay on track, stay on track, stay on track. I come from a great heritage. My preaching daddy, 
Can I just stop and brag on my daddy for a minute? I uh, couldn't say this without weeping in January. And I'm bragging on Jesus, but I'm bragging on my daddy. Daddy preached for 60 years. Daddy went to heaven on January the 8th. He'd been very sick, very sick. Preacher couldn't speak for the last six months of his life. Pastors, the day my daddy went to heaven, I was preaching. It was 11.45 in the morning. I was preaching a revival meeting. The day my daddy died, my, my daddy's three sons are preachers. His daughters are married to deacons. He's got two son-in-laws that are preachers, grandchildren that are preachers. The day my daddy died, I rejoice. The day my daddy died, they couldn't put it on social media until well after church. Because the day dad died, dad's got 15 grandchildren and 13 great-grandchildren. And I testify on that Sunday morning, every one of them were in church somewhere. All 28. What, What a heritage, man. That's the heritage I'm talking about. I'm talking about staying on track. I'm talking about godly daddy staying on track. Do what God's called you to do. Stay on track. Stay on track and be the head of the home. Stay on track and submit to your husband. Stay on track and use the gift God's given you. Stay on track. And my daddy pastored me my whole life until I left to go to school. When I was a 16-year-old boy, God saved me, called me to preach. And in the church my daddy pastored, there was a young man in that church whose name was Ricky. Back in those days, they called me Ricky. Ricky and I were best friends, and we were best friends from elementary school to, we called it junior high in those days, all the way to high school. Ricky was called to preach one month before I was called to preach. And oh, he had such passion. I was there the night Ricky preached his first sermon. His lost daddy was over there sitting somewhere on this side of the building. And I remember we had wooden, wooden steps on the altars at our church. And Ricky came down after preaching on the blood of Jesus to pray at that altar for that lost daddy. And tears were falling down on that altar. And I went down and prayed with Ricky. Boy, he had passion. Boy, he had passion. I loved to hear him preach. We graduated high school together. My daddy didn't make much money pastoring that country church. And Ricky's folks were, were not of any kind of wealth. And so daddy had arranged a few scholarships for us to go away to a Bible college together. And I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in that living room, 17 years old, just graduated high school. My friend Ricky sat beside my side. He looked at my dad who he called Brother Bob. His name was Robert. Everybody called him Brother Bob. He said, Brother Bob, let, let, let Coram go ahead and go to school this year. I'm not going to go. I'm going to wait and come back a year from now. I'm going to stay home and make a little money. My dad said, Ricky, it's already set out for you. Everything's already prepared. He said, no, just let Coram go. He said, I'll go next year. And my heart sunk, preacher, and I'm not being judgmental. But see, I knew Ricky was dating a young woman. He just started dating that young lady that I knew was not best for his life. And folks, this isn't some preacher story. I'm not making this up. I went away to that school realizing if something didn't happen, Ricky would never go to school. And he never did. He never did. For you know what happened? By the time I came back, before that freshman year was over, that girl was pregnant. Ricky was the father. And they were married. By the time I finished my sophomore year, they were divorced. By the time I was finished my junior year, another young lady was pregnant. Ricky was the father. And by the time I graduated that school, they had divorced. By the time I became a student minister, my first position out of college, Ricky had married again, had a baby again. And by the time I became a senior pastor in the state of Florida, I pastored for eight years. By the time I became a senior pastor in the state of Florida, they had divorced. Ricky had three different wives, three children with three wives. And then word reached me one day that Ricky was in scrapes with the law. He couldn't hold a job. He was in and out of trouble. And I thought, what a waste. 
A young man with so much talent, with so much ability. And I've only seen him one time, one time, about 15 years ago. About 15 years ago, I don't preach in Florida much. But about 15 years ago, I was preaching in that area of Florida where Ricky and I played on the possums together. And I didn't know Ricky was there that night. And preacher, I remember like it was yesterday, he came down the aisle after the service and he just kind of grabbed me. And he, you know, kind of held each other macho like by the forearms. And Ricky and I looked at one another. He owed me no explanation, but with tears racing down his face. And by the way, I'm not trying to be corny students. I'm not much to look at, but Ricky looks so much older than I did. Because that's what sin will do to you. Sin will put wrinkles in your face. Sin will take years off your life. Sin will shorten your life. Ricky held me by the forearms long before God gave me this sermon. He owed me no explanation, but here's what he said. Coram, I got off track. I got off track. And I got to thinking, Brother Jason, you know how many folks can say that tonight? I got off track. So I appeal to young students. I appeal to young Christians. You're in the first quarter, man. The whole game is in front of you. You've got the opportunity right now to live without regret. To marry the person of God's choice. To go to the school of God's choice. To do what God has told you to do. Do it. Do it. Stay on track. And if there's somebody here that got off track, I preached it last night. My God's a God of a second chance. My God still forgives. You've been patient with me. I've been full. This is the sermon I was supposed to preach. Somebody here tonight needs to stand against temptation. Somebody needs to stay on track. And there's a third one. I'll go to my final point. The third one's a, a financial analogy. The third one is be stewards of the treasure. Be stewards of the treasure. For he says in verse 7, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. I've guarded the boss's deposits. I've guarded the valuables. You know what that means? This is a treasure. Those of us that handle the word of God, it's a treasure. Be faithful. Keep the faith. Those of us who stand to preach, can I remind you, I'm surrounded tonight by a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering me on. It's worth it all. Keep the faith. Can I tell you some other valuables you've got? Your marriage is valuable. Your reputation is a treasure. Your testimony is a treasure. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. I'm going to close. Here's what we've learned tonight. The enemy wants you to quit, number one, so you'll be filled with regret. So your ministry will be unfulfilled and so your mission will be unfinished. The enemy wants you to quit, number two, so you'll forfeit your reward. So stand against temptation. Stay on track. Be stewards of the treasure. Number three, and I'm done. This is the worst one, but it's here. Number three, the enemy wants you to quit so you'll fail your redeemer. I need to say that one more time. So you'll fail your redeemer because he says again in that eighth verse, henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the church shall give me at that day. Which the pastor shall give me at that day. Which my husband or wife will give me at that day. Oh yeah, I'm doing this on purpose. He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me that day. So listen, these last two or three minutes, don't miss this. I'll remind you one more time. We will stand before Jesus Christ. Stand before him. Don't you understand what that means? That means God has saved you not to be the best. God has saved you to do your best. God has saved you to be accountable, to use the ability God's given you because there's accountability for that ability. And I'm going to say it for the last time. One day I'll walk up to Jesus Christ and preacher. I couldn't imagine anything worse than laying wood, hay, and stubble at his feet and look into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus because they'll be there. Look into his nail-pierced hands and know he on the cross said, it is finished for me, but I didn't finish for him. To know that he didn't quit on me, but I quit on him. 
to know that he went all the way for me, but I didn't go all the way for him. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. In the last 10 years, what has become known as one of the greatest motivational stories given by motivational speakers in rallies around the country is a story of John Joseph Anqua. John Joseph Anqua was the great Tanzanian runner in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, Mexico. What a story. John Joseph was the best marathoner in the world. And you do know in the Olympics, no matter how fancy we get, the marathon is still the staple. Again, back in, back in Athens, that 26-mile, 26-plus-mile race where somebody runs 26 miles, begins in the stadium in front of the cheering crowd for the gold medal, and they run around that track and then out the stadium gates, and they run 26 miles through the countryside. Back into the stadium gates with a cheering throng, the marathon. Can you imagine the little tiny African nation of Tanzania? He was going to win a gold medal. He was the best in the world. The best in the world. And he was training ready for the Olympics. Had won all the meets previously. Had won everything that year. And in 1968, the Olympics were held in Mexico City, a place of high altitude. And though John Joseph had trained When he got to Mexico City, he began to struggle with the climate and the altitude. His body began to freeze up. He began to dehydrate, began to have muscle cramps. People didn't know about it, didn't have social media in those days, but he was struggling. And then it came the day of the medal race. He was on the front line, chance to win the gold medal. 70,000 screaming people in the stands. The guns sounded and off they went all the way around that track. The greatest runners in the world, out the stadium gates, through the Mexico City countryside and landscape and city. At the 20-mile mark, he was ahead because he was the best in the world. But he was dehydrated. His legs were cramping up and he was staggering dizzy. And they said that John Joseph began to stagger and list a little bit to his left. And when he did, a runner in his blind spot was just off his shoulder. He fell into him. And all those other runners, having run 20 miles now, many fatigued, they began to fall over one another. And they said it was a huge human dog pile right there in the middle of the street. And they got all the other runners off. And the only one that could not continue in the race was John Joseph Anquari. He couldn't continue. They got him over on the grass. He had a dislocated left knee, a dislocated left shoulder, contusions, bad contusions, they said, on his legs. And the bottom part of his legs running, blood running down into his shoes. They got him over and got everything stopped, got him stabilized. They said it took an hour. It took an hour. Everybody's long gone. So it took an hour. It took an hour to get that great runner stabilized, the bleeding to stop, where they felt like they could move him. And they said, John, we're going to move you now to the Olympic Village, to the infirmary. And that great runner said no. And they said nobody tried to stop him. He got off, off that gurney there, off that stretcher, and he began to limp like this and drag this leg. He said, I'm finishing the race. And he began to do this. And they said, there's no way. Everybody's already finished. You're dead last. And that great runner began to drag that leg. And they said he drug that leg six miles through the streets of Mexico City. Dragging that leg just like this. Into the stadium gates, around the track to the finish line. There weren't 70,000 there anymore. Estimates said there was about 2,000. And they watched that great runner drag that leg all the way through to the finish line. And some reporter from ABC television stuck a microphone under his face. Son, if this happened today, you'd talk about breaking news. You'd talk about something going viral. It's one of the greatest quotes in Olympic history. They stuck the microphone under his face and the, the, the reporter said, Why, John? Why? You're last. Everybody's gone. 
Why? Why did you put your body through that agony for six miles to come through the streets? Why did you do it? It wasn't worth it. And John Joseph Anquari looked at that camera and here's what he said. He said, because my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. Let me tell you, your Savior didn't save you just to start the race. He saved you to finish. He didn't fill you with the Holy Ghost to start. He filled you with the Holy Ghost to finish. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Bow with me all over the building. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the house. I'm going to say it one more time. I have never preached this message to close a revival meeting. This message has not been to the lost. So I need to say something to the lost. Thank God for those that have been saved this week. But if you're lost, you're not in the race. You're on the wrong track. You're on the broad road that leads to hell and you need Jesus. And he's the only one that can save your soul. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't attend church enough Sundays to get to heaven. You can't be dunked and baptized in enough creeks, rivers, and baptistries to go to heaven. You must repent of your sins and confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I still believe there may be somebody here tonight that needs to do that. I know I'm preaching to a predominantly Christian audience here, but there may be somebody that's not saved. And I'll invite you to leave your seat and come take this pastor by the hand and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I'm going to say again, I've said it for three nights in a row. There may be somebody here needs to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Be obedient to the Lord. God might have told you to move your membership and join this church. You ought to do it tonight. Obedience brings revival. But I told you, I used to preach this sermon a lot. Hadn't preached it but once this year. But every time I preach it, I give the same invitation. And I'm going to give it now, preacher. I know Sunday night we ministered to one another because we prayed for one another's ministry. What a fitting way to close this series of meetings. I want us to encourage one another. I don't want anybody to feel bound up by this. I don't want anybody to feel nervous about this. But I'm going to ask you to move again, much like we did Sunday night. I'm going to ask you to go encourage another believer with two words. Don't quit. I'm going to say that one more time. Don't quit. It might be a pastor. It might be a deacon. But it might be that silent senior adult that's never missed. That's in their post every Sunday. You know, we all let folks know how they've encouraged our Christian life while they're still living. So I'm telling you, if there's a name on your heart, I didn't put it there, God did. It's that nursery worker. It's that preschool worker. And I know they're in the back. It's that faithful servant of God that has challenged you and encouraged you because they're always in the fight. The reason I think I preach this with so much passion is two years ago, a 62-year-old pastor friend of mine committed suicide. And I preached in his church, Brother Jason. They run about 250. I preached in his church a number of times, a good church. Nobody knew of his discouragement, but he left his wife a letter after they found his body hanging in a tree. And the letter said, I'm not making a difference. See, you don't know who's going through something tonight. So you better hear me. We got a full house. Don't you let a crowded pew stop you. Don't you let a crowded church stop you. When I finish praying, the music's going to begin. Our sister will sing in a few moments, but the music first. And I'm going to challenge you to leave your seat. If you have to go to the front to the back, back to the front, you go put your arms around the believer that God told you to and say two words, don't quit.
Don't quit. And don't you dare stand there and say, I'm going to wait and do it after the service. You better do it when the Holy Ghost tells you to do it. Some wife needs to tell her husband not to quit tonight. Some husband needs to tell his wife. Now, by the way, is the altar open? Absolutely. It's open to somebody who needs a fresh touch from the Lord. It's open to somebody who needs to lay something down before the Lord. It's open to somebody who's struggling with temptation tonight. It's open to somebody who needs victory tonight. It's open to everybody. But I'm going to ask you to say, say, Brother Rick, what's everybody going to think? We're not concerned. It's about pleasing the Lord. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to go. If there's a name on your heart, I didn't put it there. God did. God did. And by the way, those preschool workers in the back, those workers in the back, I'm not telling you to go back there and cause confusion, but you better not let them get off these grounds tonight without telling somebody not to quit. You better move now when the Holy Ghost tells you to move. God, Lord, this was the message I was supposed to preach tonight. God, somebody here in this building needs this word. Not from some puny preacher, God. Oh, God forbid. Not not from feeble lips, but from your inerrant and fallible word. So God, I pray that all of us could leave here tonight saying this, that I have fought a good fight and I'll keep fighting until I'm done. I'll finish the course that you've got for me, God, because I'm running for the crown. God, I pray all over the building, believers would encourage one another in the Lord. I pray for that Christian and that God that's about to quit. God, I pray they'd hit this altar, come to this pastor. I pray they'd draw a line in the sand and not God and not resign, but resign. God, would you move in this building right now and we'll praise you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Now listen, this isn't some religious exercise. I want you to keep your heads bowed because we're before the Lord. You don't need to look see what everybody else is doing. The music is beginning right now. And just as the music begins, I'm going to ask you to do what God told you to right now. Right now. I didn't have you stand. Everybody stand. I got so caught up in my prayer. Everybody stand. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Thank you for your patience. Do it right now. Obey the Lord right now. That's right. That's right. Every church ought to have a service like this once in a while. We're just encouraging one another in the faith. Don't quit. Don't quit. In a moment, Sister Raquel will begin to sing just as the piano plays. If there's somebody you need to pray with at an altar, you come pray with them right now. Don't quit. Don't quit. You better obey the Lord. You better obey the Lord. I wish you could stand where I'm standing and see what God's doing across the building. But you better obey the Lord. If God's telling you to move, you move right now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. If you need to bring somebody to the altar, you bring them to the altar. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. She's about to sing. I'm going to ask you to keep in an attitude of prayer before the Lord. Just obey the Lord. Don't quit. That's right. That's right. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.